Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life, so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Today, I want to talk about the idea of doing the best you can and what that means. Because one of the primary things I've heard from clients is that they feel like they aren't trying hard enough, that they could be doing better, and they're not doing their best. By the way, this includes the not explicitly neurodivergent clients I've had. Conceptually, I like the idea that everyone is doing their best. It feels like a trauma-informed idea, but because I've rarely felt like I was doing my own best, even when trying really hard, it was hard for me to assume others are. It has also been hard for me to assume that others think that everyone is doing their best because it's really not the language of the culture I grew up in. It feels like a fairly common experience to feel that you're not doing your best, but it's more complicated for the ADHD neurotype for a few reasons. First, there's this idea I mentioned that because of our own internal experience, it can be hard to imagine how others are interacting with this idea of what doing your best even means. We also might have evidence that we try far harder than others seem to in a variety of contexts such as work and school and relationships. Second, we all have different conglomerations of executive function challenges that are often obfuscated from our own awareness. In other words, it doesn't always feel like we're hitting a real and present obstacle. Instead, it feels like we've just stopped moving and don't want to move anymore. And I'm going to dig more into this in a moment. Third, with our spiky profiles and cyclical energy, there are often things that we actually can do on a great day, sometimes at a very high professional level. Then there are average days when many things feel frustrating, and of course, the bad days when even resting can feel like we're full of roiling crap. To tie all that together, one of the most frustrating things in my own experience is feeling like it is either impossible or extraordinarily difficult to do something I did with ease one week ago. Much of the self-help movement is about this idea of steady growth. I'm sure you've heard the idea of compounding interest applied to our daily habits. For example, this idea I've heard quoted many times that if you got 1% better every day at something, you'd be a fucking great guitarist or whatever in a few years. Music teacher in me aside, when we build skill or even literal muscle, that's not the only thing going on in the whole mind-body system. Organic systems do not grow in a linear manner. It often looks linear from the outside or looking back over a longer period of time, but it almost never feels linear internally. You've probably also heard the phrase that healing isn't linear or that healing is cyclical. My favorite image for that is the spiral staircase where You keep coming around the same point, but now you're a level up. Sorry to throw in a fourth metaphor in 30 seconds, but trees literally make choices about how to use their energy in a season based on what they predict is going to happen. And they often predict wrong and then they die. I love that as a metaphor for demand avoidance as an energy management technique, because it often does feel like an extreme safety issue, like my life is at risk when someone is asking me to expend energy I'm not prepared to spend. Which brings me back around to the issue of executive function making it feel like we've hit a wall. There's very little cultural language to describe that as an actual block that people take seriously. 
I often hear people call something self-sabotage, and when we dig into it, it turns out it's just basic executive function problems. One simple example of what this looks like in a way that's easy to explain to people is the physical example of a muscle starting to reach its limit. When I was moving years ago, it was around the time I started testosterone, but I didn't have a lot of muscle or stamina, and it might have been right before I started. There was a moment when I was pushing through physically, and I almost passed out at the top of a flight of stairs while holding a box. I had to slow way down and be like, oh shit, I'm putting my life at danger here. I now know the signs of my body reaching that point, and I will use the phrase, I'm hitting a wall. It's important to stop and rest at that point, or the likelihood of injury is even higher than usual. That's very similar to how it feels when my brain cannot do a thing. There are physical mechanisms for this, which we're just starting to understand in the science, but there are a lot of unknowns. One potential one is over-sinking of the brain areas, where they kind of get stuck together like gears that aren't supposed to be turning together. There are also other potential communication issues within the brain, including neurochemical issues. But we can't actually sense any of that, because that's not how the mind-body system gives us messages. The mind-body system mostly gives us messages through the shorthand of emotions, physical sensations, and pain or pleasure most of which we experience in multiple types of situations, if we're even aware of them at all. So it can be difficult to know exactly what the message means, even if we have it narrowed down to a few options for that particular emotion or sensation or pain. Kind of like when a baby is crying, and you know it's probably one of a handful of things that the baby wants, it's a small number of things, but you can't necessarily tell which one until you try them. Even having worked a lot on interoception and having built a lot of safety around getting messages from my body, I still miss a lot and guess wrong a lot. So when the brain is reaching that wall, when it's getting to a point where it just can't do a thing, we don't exactly have the feedback of a muscle wearing out. We might experience pain, but it might be emotional discomfort. And again, that can just be really hard to understand and interpret and then take action from because once we already feel bad, it's harder to change states uh, and transitions can become more difficult. One common one for me is my body making it clear that it wants a huge state change. Either I'm sitting still trying to do a cognitive task and my body starts feeling this really almost itchy desire to move, or I'm doing something upright and my body is like, oh my God, lie down right now. It's really fucking annoying, but it's one of the main ways my brain communicates that it needs a break or a change. In our perfectionist and completionist culture, just stopping what you're doing to take an unspecified break is not encouraged, let alone celebrated. We're sometimes told to listen to our bodies or speak up for our needs, but when those needs look like needing a nap during the workday in an office building, there's usually literally not space for that. Although I did luck out one time in an office with a nursing room with a big reclining chair. Here's an incomplete list of some of the things that might be causing your brain to feel like it has hit a wall that are invisible and rarely offered to you as a reason that you might be feeling bad. Decision fatigue, overall energy management issues, which can present as demand avoidance, PDA, persistent driver autonomy or pathological demand avoidance, Invisible physical disabilities that affect cognition and energy, such as long COVID, chronic fatigue, any condition with chronic pain because pain is exhausting and takes a lot of energy. Running out of social battery and needing to be alone. On the opposite end, feeling lonely and needing another body present to co-regulate. 
overstimulation or too much sensory input in general, trauma triggers, including being triggered back into what feels like a younger version of you who has less access to skills and emotional regulation, feeling tired either mentally or physically, recently having completed a difficult task, including pleasurable tasks such as long creative flow blocks because they can deplete brain chemicals, running out of willpower later in the day, losing interest in what you're doing, boredom or feeling understimulated, difficulty with transitions, which I'm going to break down into some subcategories because this is a huge one for me personally, wanting to stick with what you're doing, being ready for the next thing but having to wait, it feeling impossible to start or move on to the next thing, distress at thinking about how annoying or difficult it's going to be to figure out how to start the next thing, and feeling physically stuck. Then moving back to the main list, the environment not supporting you in doing the thing, wanting to complete the entire task in a single sitting, but knowing that that's impossible, getting distracted, remembering something else that feels more urgent or important and switching to that instead, critical self-talk or memories of other people criticizing you, starting something and realizing you missed a step or that there's a step you can't complete without help or more information or that there are specific reasons you can't complete this in the way you want to right now. Frustration with any or all of the above, uh, in other words, emotions kicking in around structural difficulties. Desire to numb out either because of a present difficulty or remembering how difficult this was the last time you did it and actively choosing something pleasurable, such as your phone or TV or food. There are more, but I hope I'm getting the point across. Many of these are directly related to executive function. Some of them aren't the best examples, such as moving on to a totally different task because that's not being just stuck. But I also wanted to offer a wide range of things because we're not told, especially as kids, that these are factors of a tired or unsupported brain. We are told that many of these things are active bad choices that we're making, when in reality, sometimes dissociating on my phone for a bit actually helps me get back into a difficult task. Whereas forcing myself to do the task the first time around can kick in defense mechanisms that my body has come up with to protect me from burnout. How does all of this connect back to the idea of doing our best? In short, we're often told that somewhat automatic reactions of our brain and body are actually conscious choices that we're making and that we should make better ones. But in my experience, this isn't simply a question of habitual behavior that can be changed easily. We've actually come up with some quite clever workarounds in a world not built for us. And those workarounds often look strange from the outside or don't fit easily into something like a nine to five office job. To pivot to the example that sparked the idea for this episode, I'm thinking about emotional regulation. Emotional regulation, or being able to modulate, tolerate, and temper our emotions, can be difficult for both ADHD and autistic folks, especially when we're tired or hungry, etc. Setting the scene for the moment that got me thinking about this, my partner does almost all the cooking at home and often asks me to come up with ideas for meals. We also both get grumpy when very hungry, so I'll sometimes help with something snacky or quick and easy to make sure we don't get to that point. A couple of days ago, I brought up an idea for a meal around 4 p.m., and I think neither of us had had lunch yet, so we were really hungry. They didn't like my idea, but didn't have another suggestion yet. When we started doing kitchen stuff, I asked how I could help, and my partner was experiencing decision fatigue, but didn't know that yet, and said, I don't know yet, in a slightly snippy voice. Now, if I didn't have complex PTSD, and if I didn't have specific kitchen trauma, and if I'd never had rejection-sensitive dysphoria symptoms... 
that could have felt a lot more neutral, those two little kind of mini, mini rejections, basically. Five years ago, there's a 99% chance that I would have just left the kitchen to go do my own thing and calm down. I simply didn't have the emotional regulation skills to stay in the moment and not get reactive myself. What was interesting when this happened a couple days ago is that my very first thought was, whoops, we got too hungry and now we're both grumpy because I felt reactive to, again, kind of pushing back against that little grumpiness from my partner. There was just enough space in that thought that I was able to not react how I used to. And I didn't even feel particularly bothered because I recognized that it's not actually about me or targeted at me specifically, even though that's how my trauma can make it feel. It felt relatively easy to wait a bit until they could actually ask me to do a useful task. That was in part because I had my headphones on. Listening to something gave me something to feel entertained and engaged while I wiped down the counter and did a few dishes. The version of me a few years ago who would have needed space from the situation was trying their best. The version of me 10 years ago who might have had a full-on reaction was trying their best. They both were dealing with lower emotional regulation skills due to much more present trauma activation systems. They also both had less self-awareness about that huge list of things I offered before that can make things feel more difficult. My point is that if you have trauma and or don't have the emotional regulation capacity in the moment, the way that you react or respond is not meaningfully a choice. The idea of full responsibility for your reactions just doesn't make sense to me with what we know of biology and trauma. That said, I think the responsibility does come back in on the back end when you've done or said something that's hurt someone. So for example, when my partner was in that hangry state, if I had left the room just to go self-soothe, fine. If I had been snippy myself and had been reactive myself or had said something mean, I am responsible for that on the back end. It would be important to apologize and repair the relationship. Two more thoughts on that. My partner did apologize a bit later for being snippy, even though in my mind that wasn't really necessary. It was so small. It was just a thing that they know triggers me, or at least has in the past. And the other tangential thought is that my dad almost never expressed extreme rage or violence toward us when there was an authority figure around who could have gotten him in trouble. So I do believe that even extremely traumatized folks sometimes have more control than they realize or want to admit. And yes, I do think my dad is responsible for his violence towards us. So there's this paradox going on. Even though there's this side of emotional regulation, trauma, RSD going on, I can throw a bunch of labels at it and come up with a good post hoc justification for why I might have behaved a certain way. And at the same time, if I want to maintain healthy relationships, I need to be able to communicate, address, and repair afterwards. And I don't think anyone should have to put up with actual abuse, such as with my dad. In general, this episode, I'm talking about non-abusive people having occasional reactive behavior, especially if they're seeking help to learn to handle it better. I was doing my best a decade ago when I would fall apart at the slightest hint of rejection and communicated that badly. I was doing my best five years ago when I needed to leave the room to self-soothe and come back to equilibrium in a way that felt safe to my nervous system. And I'm doing my best now when I put on headphones and take some sensory space when I'm not getting what I need in the interaction. In this particular example of being in the kitchen, I know I use a lot of kitchen examples, but because it's a particularly triggering place for me. 
In this particular moment, it didn't actually require much self-soothing because it was easy for me to find compassion immediately in the moment. Also, I know my partners only like this when hungry or tired, and I want to give them that space to be an emotional creature with a body as well in the same way that they give me. In this idea of people doing their best, it often comes back to puritanical work ethic. There is this underlying assumption that people should be using more willpower and that they should just be able to push down, suppress the urges that they have. Our neurotype is not well suited to long-term suppression. It can be deeply dysregulating, which makes everything else more difficult. Most of us also struggle with emotional regulation and impulse control, either as a common feature of our experience or cyclically based on our overall capacity. Again, that's not to say that you can't control any of your impulses or that you can't say no or that you can't push through or that you can't mask as needed. We can do those things in some circumstances, but we can't do them in every instance, every time, which is what signals to me that this isn't simply a choice. It's like I was talking about earlier with hitting a wall. We need the circumstances, the internal landscape, the support, the physicality and neurochemistry, etc., to be lined up in the right way in order for this to feel accessible and easy. And that's why I experience my own capacity and emotional regulation overall as a spectrum and not just as an on or off switch. In an ideal world, my best would mean a little above my average and not my actual 100% on the very best of days with the most complete support, which is what my brain actually thinks it is. I wish my brain was a little more chill on that front. That's the continual deconstructing of the absolute bullshit nonsense I absorbed as a kid around what it means to do your best. But for me today, doing my best means the following. Expressing myself as best I can, doing what I can in the moment and stopping if it feels particularly off, breathing through or moving through momentary anxiety that I know doesn't mean anything, such as when I'm unloading the dishwasher and my brain thinks I'm doing it in the wrong order and my brain screams at me momentarily, asking for help, asking for help, asking for help, trying to get some kind of answer from my body or brain if it's strongly resisting something, so I can figure out whether I need to stop or ask for help or delay or give up entirely. Apologizing when I fuck up because I'm bound to fuck up sometimes and making shitty drafts. That's where I'm at with it. And that sounds pretty doable, eh? I don't even want to describe what I thought doing my best meant five years ago when I was fully in workaholic mode. If you are tired, worn down, hungry, experiencing decision fatigue, struggling with transitions or executive function, you're probably doing your best. If on better days, it feels hard to mobilize to do big stuff, that's probably because you need rest. When you're resting, you're doing your best too. I personally need a lot of rest. Here are a few questions for you that I'll put in the show notes if you'd like to reflect on them and see how all of this resonates in your own life. One, what does doing your best mean to you and how do you know when you're doing your best? Two, how would it feel to know that you're doing your best most or all of the time? Three, did this awaken a critical voice in your mind? Does that feel like your voice or someone else's? Is this voice actually helping you? And either way, is this the main voice you want to live by? Four, 
When have you felt compassion for someone else who is obviously trying their best? This could be a child or someone in the process of learning something. And lastly, five, why do you feel driven to do your best if that's something you often feel? I do want to quickly address two things about this topic that I've heard from neurodivergent folks. One is when you're feeling better and you want some fire under your ass because you want to do more. And one is when you're feeling better, but it's like you're crawling out of a hole. If your capacity has grown because you've been healing, and this goes for physical issues as well, you might have this energy, but aren't sure where to direct it first because there are so many potential options. Plus, there's the fear of overdoing it and burning out again. Your brain might have some protective mechanisms in place, and I don't like plowing through those without acknowledging them. You might also feel frustrated when feeling better because it can feel like crawling out of a hole of your own making that previous you made when feeling like shit. It can feel like shoots and ladders just going up and down and up and down, but not getting anywhere in particular. And that is doubly frustrating if you have a lot of big ideas and occasional big bursts of energy in which to theoretically make some progress on them. If you feel like you have energy to do something, but you're not sure what, or you know what you want to do, but worry you'll just fall back into old patterns with it, or aren't sure how to mobilize the resources and energy that you have, I can help. Start the new year off with clarity about what you want, certainty that the first steps are doable, and a sense of control over how you get there. In a special session designed for the new year, I help you find that clarity, certainty, and control around something important for you to make progress on this next year. Even if it feels too big to complete in the year, sometimes knowing you can and will make progress feels amazing. It's the opposite of being stuck. The main question I've gotten from folks is basically, how does a plan help me if my problem has been around implementation? Quick answer is that is the main thing we're solving for once you have clarity around making sure what you want to do is generally doable and accessible for you. We look at the resources you already have available before starting to brainstorm potential new ones. The longer answer, and this is for everyone listening, even if this particular session isn't for you, Implementation is just hard, especially for an interest-based nervous system as the novelty wears off, and especially if you lack support on any level, which most of us do in multiple areas. And to be honest with you, sometimes when we start to look at a goal from different angles with that in mind, people realize they need to make the intention smaller or sooner or wait until they can get a real deadline attached to it. But the benefit to that is that if you're intentionally deciding to set something aside for now, your brain gets to breathe this big sigh of relief. It's no longer hanging over you, causing cognitive load. It's like decluttering inside of your brain and can actually open up space to get excited about other things again. You deserve to feel like you're making progress, and we have so few ways of acknowledging and celebrating small or personal progress. Here are the details about the session. It's 90 minutes, which gives us time to get that clarity, reach certainty about next steps, and give you a sense of control with the resources at your disposal to get started and to seek help when you need it again. And if you've never done a 90-minute session like this before, you're used to that hour, 45 minutes, 
Trust me when I say I've experimented a lot with folks and I know that this is the right length for this particular thing. I designed it around this time because we need this time. There's sliding scale pricing, which you can confidently choose from without asking me about it. I trust you. You'll get a recording of the session, so you don't have to take notes if you'd rather not. And we'll have time to do some body-based modalities near the end if it feels right and if anything came up around big resistance or stuckness that doesn't feel like a structural design problem. So we have time to both solve for structural design issues and get the body and brain on board. You will come away with a clear roadmap that includes what resources you'll draw from next and what to try when you inevitably hit obstacles. You'll feel like this intention that's important to you is actually possible. And you'll have that inspiration boost that can get you into action quickly and start the momentum because that feeling of progress can feel self-sustaining for a while. If you have questions about whether your specific project or situation is something I can help with in this particular session, you can email Mattia at MattiaMarie.com. And I extended the bonus through the end of December because I have capacity and I think this is fun. Everyone who signs up by the end of December, after we meet, I'll spend a session researching for you and send you an email of additional resources, ideas, books, people to check out, etc., which will also be customized to the types of resources you prefer, such as video, audio, reading, etc. You'll have that to jump into when you have capacity in support of your exact needs and intentions. So get some oomph behind your intention for the new year and get that clarity, certainty, and control in just 90 minutes with me. I've been doing this for four years now, and one of my best strengths with clients is helping them feel inspired, unstuck, and like it's actually possible to move forward. And I designed this specific session around exactly that, and I know it's possible for you. Wherever you're at in your journey, I believe that you're doing your best. If you'd like some outside support, that's available. And if you're in deep winter hibernation mode and want to figure it out on your own, go for it. I love that feeling too. Again, you can email questions to Mattia at MattiaMarie.com and I'll talk to you next year. Happy New Year. Thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself. I hope the episode sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you're looking for gentle ongoing support, I invite you to join the Like Your Brain community. It's a non-hierarchical and no-pressure space to share our lived experiences together and learn from each other. Ask authentic questions, share your own wisdom, and be a part of building a safer space for folks with identities that are often marginalized. And if you're not yet ready to be seen in a group space, we've all been there, you can join the podcast support tier, which has a private podcast feed with some of the learnings from Like Your Brain and additional podcast content, so you can absorb on your own terms and timeline. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash Mattia. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-T-T-I-A. Have a great week.